This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org. Good morning. Thank you to Abbot Mio for the invitation to speak today and to Cato for being the negotiator. Uh, I didn't hear some stuff, so I'm not sure. Should I introduce myself? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Reverend Lian Shut or Kedu Lian Shut. Joyful Dragon. Uh, I'm a Dharma heir of. Zen K. Blanche Hartman, um, and I'm in obviously in the lineage. And Mio was the Tanto when I was at Tassajara, which is many years ago now. And uh, it's great to be here with you all. Uh, I did hear that you guys had gone back to a hybrid in person, and I. Came on just a wee late for a Zen person, so Mio was just at the altar, and uh, it was great to have the feel of being back in a Zendo, which I haven't had for a while. So, ah, does feel a bit more like being there. Uh, of course, you know, um, I remember when Cato asked a while back and was scheduling for the year or I and I was like, I don't know, by this time, are we going to be back? And he's like, you know, don't know, of course. And when he reminded me a week ago or so about this event and I did ask and um, yeah, part of me really wanted to come and then with the Delta variant just really worried and um, like many of us just really adjusting to this coming and going shifts of coming out of the pandemic um, and so um, today I, I wanted to talk about harmony I like to say being in harmony with experiences so um, thinking about harmony it brought me back to the time when I was in chorus. Who, who here has been in a choral group or are currently in a choral group? So those who can, I can see by raising the hands. Can't really see people in the zendo. So, <clears throat> um, I was in a choral group when I was in middle school, and I lived in Egypt. And um, this is gosh. We left when Sadat got assassinated. So this is the late 70s. So um, Barry Manilow was really big. Um, and so in chorus, we were doing his songs. And remember, those were the, the, the golden age of the, the, what was that TV show with the dancers? The gold something dancers. I can't even pull it up right. Huh? Solid gold. Solid gold dancers, yes. So remember the, and then chorus, we were always like doing our arms. That was part of, of it. And I remember we, you know, we would practice so that one side would do it, then the other, stuff like that. So, um, yeah. Um, so our, in any choral group, um, you have to try out. 
right? Uh, and it's understandable. The Coro director has to know what she or he or they um, have, you know, and to balance out the, the different positions. Um, and I have to admit that I have to look these up because it's been many years ago and I, and I was never a core director. So in most chorus, there's the bass, the bass baritone, the baritone, the tenor, the countertenor, the contralto, the mezzo-soprano, and the soprano. Now, in the uh, 70s, and certainly in middle school in Egypt, um, we didn't we didn't call ourselves, or I didn't remember being called mezzo-soprano, because I'm what's called a second soprano right, at the time. And um, it's the second highest female voice type in a chorus, right? Um, and it's also the one that's kind of in between, the, of course, the alto and the sopranos. Um, and here, and I looked it up. The, the mezzo-soprano is the second highest. Uh, the mezzo-soprano will usually sing along with the sopranos and not the altos and will be given the title of soprano two. When the soprano split in half, she will sing the lower melody as her timbre is darker. And, okay, here I really don't know my, my choral terms. Tessitura lower, lower than the sopranos. And so, um, as you can see, it's soprano two. And um, rethinking about it, it did have a sense of, wow, like, I'm the second best. <laughs> like the second soprano is the second best. Um, and so, you know, this is the train of thought, right? From harmony to choral to tryouts to judgment to disappointed. <laughs> uh, and, you know, these come, I fully um, avow that this come given the conditions of my, my life and body, heart and mind and life experience. Um, and, you know, besides being queer, obviously a person of color, I did grow up very poor. And uh, as far as I can still hold, I, I'm of the female persuasion. Uh, that's my sense of myself. Um, and so I think there's a lot of complexity that comes with our lives. Um, and so when, when things are difficult, um, I think it's good to, to kind of go back to um, what's, what's our motivation? What's our intentions? Um, and so one way to do that is to come back to ourselves, to bring attention, not from the outside, but to the inside. So bringing attention to our intentions. Of course, you know, our, our tendency is to see what else outside is making us or keeping us anxious. Right? Um, and yet the only place we have the most influence over in moment to moment you know, the most, not the only, but the most, um, is our own. So, of course, as Dogen would say, 
put aside the intellectual practice of investigating words and phrases, uh, thoughts, my thoughts in this case, and learn to take the backward steps that turns the light and shines it inward. So, and, and to take this um, back to memory lane and analogy of a course group, I think inward, turning inward here, we could say if what if each of us um, take on the role of the choral director, right? The one to um, manage what is going on. Um, what if we leave outside conditions um, that are doing things to us? Um, what if we took it as we have the, we're empowered by choice on how our experience, the chorus of our experience happens? empathy is often um, defined as or said as to put yourself in another person's shoes so what if we put ourselves in our own shoes in our own experience right? what if we investigate um, and at times abandon or cultivate and realize the processes of our own thoughts and experience so um let me say that um, one way that I would define mindfulness, right, um, is that uh, the awareness that's like a director or like a maitre d' in a restaurant, right? Someone who um, is aware of the, the various parts and is charged with um, being able to negotiate how that all works together. So again, the core director. Of course, um, the choral director also has to hold the intention of what is the purpose? What is the purpose of this group, of this, um, of the choral group? And intention, of course, comes in the second factor of the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth factor of the Four Noble Truths, of course. So um, it is considered in the um, skillful intention or skillful thought um, and since in Buddhism, thought is a very purposive kind of thinking. Um, and it goes in the wisdom aspect of the Eightfold Path. Um, just quickly summarize, the Eightfold Path has eight aspects, or is broken up into three parts, right? What's called the wisdom part, which is skillful view or skillful understanding, um, which is um, to understand the Four Noble Truths and the understanding of karma, that's skillful understanding. Skillful thought or skillful intention is, um, and sometimes also, or motivation is again, seeing how, working, knowing how, what are the thoughts that are skillful versus unskillful. And I'm going to obviously go into that a bit more, but to go back to the Eightfold. Um, so wisdom, classically the way they're listed is, and then this next section is called the ethical conduct, or I like to say the compassionate conduct, sila, right? skillful speech, skillful action, and skillful livelihood. And then the third is what's called the, usually called the samadhi section, the meditative section, skillful effort, skillful mindfulness, and skillful concentration. I will say that Gil Fransdell also calls this the emotional and mental development section of the Eightfold Path. So our meditation, while it's listed third, is often 
thought of as the bridge between our uh, understanding of the world and our and how we um, are motivated into our action. So our meditative factors help us to take what we hold to be true and of value into our behavior into sila and then it's also as a bridge the other way when we speak act and live in a way that's not in accordance with our understanding the world and our value it also helps us to negotiate between those two so again skillful intention is in this wisdom aspect um, bhikkhu bodhi says uh, skillful intention or right is the classic translation and right here as in um, appropriate I would say recently I heard uh, I can't pull up who it is Analio maybe or no Thanissar Bhikkhu say that um, <clears throat> in the commentary right here is in the correct way and the the example I guess in the commentary is <laughs> I find this really fun uh, funny um, so if you go to let's say your intention is to go to milk a cow then you would not pull on the tail to get milk right so this is why the right is in you would pull the, the appropriate you know thing to get milk so that's that that's the commentary on how what what it's meant by right so the appropriate so again bhikkhu bodhi says uh, skillful intention or right intention follows as the natural consequence of right view. Through right view, we gain an understanding of the real nature of existence, and this understanding changes our motivation, our purposes in life, our intentions and inclination. As a result, our minds become shaped by right intentions as opposed to wrong intentions. So, um, in the middle length discourses, the Buddha, when he observed um, his thoughts, observed there are two sets of thoughts, right? uh, where there's uh, desire or lust, and it goes with desire, ill will, and harmfulness or violence. So that's one set that's called the unskillful set for obvious reasons. And then the skillful set is renunciation, non-aversion or goodwill, and harmlessness. So notice they, they are considered the antidote. So the antidote to desire uh, is renunciation. The antidote to ill will is non-aversion or goodwill. And the um, antidote to harmfulness or violence is harmlessness. So the Buddha said, you know, you dispel the former, the unskillful, um, by strengthening the latter. In modern speak, we could say, in modern speak, I mean me, um, <laughs> we could say that we want to be, be aware of, right, or beware of the tendency of our thoughts in the realms of um, desire, ill will, and harmfulness to see what happens and then we cultivate or we access renunciation, goodwill and harmlessness and see what happens. This is our practice. 
So I want to talk about the, the factors, the skillful factors to strengthen, especially when there's difficulty in negotiating the, the changes that are happening. And today, to, to, I'm going to talk about it as the, what I'm calling the six A's of harmony. A is in the letter A. And so in each of these, so um, goodwill, harmlessness, and renunciation, there are two A's for each of those. So I'll just name them now and then go into a little more detail. So for goodwill, which of course is in, um, metta, the practice of metta or loving kindness or kindness, or goodwill. Um, to me, the A's, the factors that help that is to accept or to acknowledge the conditions that we are in as it is. And then um, we want to allow for um, the complexity of our responses. And then in terms of, I'm changing the order just a little bit, in terms of harmlessness, um, this, in terms of the Brahma Bihara, this would be karuna or compassion, harmlessness as compassion. Um, I think here I want to talk about how do we adjust our expectations, our views, and then um, we also want to aim towards compassion. We want to aim towards what's important to us now, right? What's a value? What is even necessary, you could say. And then in terms of renunciation, um, which another way to talk about renunciation, of course, is relinquishing or letting go. Right? So the A there would be to ask, and then the last is awe. So we'll begin with um, goodwill, right? Or the antidote for aversion. So the intention of non-aversion or loving kindness is unconditional friendliness. Right? Um, again, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the intention of goodwill opposes the intention of ill will, thoughts governed by anger and aversion. He goes on to say that the Buddha said, metta is not just sentimental goodwill, nor is it a conscientious response to a moral imper imperative or divine command. It must become a deep inner feeling characterized by spontaneous warmth rather than by a sense of obligation. So goodwill that comes from um, a response, right? Not necessarily from thinking we, this is how I should be, or we should be, or you should be, or they should be, of course. Um, so what is it for you? What's going on with you? What's wise or skillful right here and right now that you can have volition with? So when we practice, we sit and reflect on where we are um, where we're right here, right now, and what is it that we can do with what we have? Right? With whom, and of course, give, given context, where we are. 
how can we um, accept ourselves and the present condition right now and the present as it is? I know that, <clears throat> you know, I, I think it's this last week pretty much, and so, or, or certainly at the end of last week to, to now, there's been a lot of stuff in the news about what, you know, the CDC says this and they say this, you know, vaccinated people don't have to wear masks. Then they're like, now vaccinated people have to wear masks. So I think a lot of people are like, you know, why are you sending out confusing messages? Um, and so I think we have to allow for that conditions are changing. Um, and I apologize, I don't remember the name of the head of the CDC, the, the, um, the doctor, um, but I saw a news thing of her saying, you know, and again, I can't remember a couple of days ago when she said, we're just getting um, results in and from multiple sources that really masking up inside is a, it's a good thing, right? Even for vaccinated people. So we went again, want to accept, and I think sometimes accept it's a really hard thing to do. And so that's why I also think acknowledging, right? If we, it's accepting feels very much like something I have to do. And it's just about me like letting it in. Where if it feels more um, accessible to me is how can I acknowledge that conditions have changed? And of course, some of that condition is internal, not just external, right? And then the, the harder part, I think, and, and in a way, maybe you could think of this as a progression, um, is the allowing. So when I can't accept and can I acknowledge what is, and often that allows me to accept what I am, I didn't want, but I'm, you know, cause I, I like many of us are, are to, you know, are fatigued with Zoom, with um, having, um, to do X, Y, and Z. And so a lot of it is unwanted. Um, and I think part of it is also um, allowing for the complexity of things. In fact, I will tell you that, um, as I indicated earlier, when I came on and um, uh, Mio was doing this stuff at the altar, um, uh, uh, as I was meditating, or excuse me, during zazen, I found myself leaning back, right, instead of sitting upright. And I realized this because um, on one level, I was having the sense of, wow, it's really great to feel like I'm in a zendo again. Just er literally earlier this week on Monday, I just had a Zoom meeting with my doctor who read my MRI and not only do I have a torn meniscus, but it's extreme, extremely um, tattered and also have very bad arthritis. So they could, you know, go and clean out the tatter, but then I wouldn't have any or very little meniscus there. So, uh, so then I trade the, you know, one pain for eventually having another pain. And so it has resulted in, um, I, I have been not sitting cross-legged, but pretty much the, the, the result that I have to accept and allow for is that I'm not gonna sit cross-legged again <clears throat> and maybe not do full prostration, not till it gets to the point in which I have to have a full knee replacement 
which both he and I do not think at this time is, is needed. And of course, being um, a form queen <laughs> and, and one who has pride in my uh, form um, and in my love of form for that matter, um, this has been news that, um, you know, is layered. Uh, on one level, I'm incredibly grateful for practice and um, the ability to, to um, be with this. And then also that, you know, I've had teachers who have, have um, shown me, Blanche in particular, um, of different ways of, of embodying the form, you know. Um, yeah, you know, Blanche, um, love forms also, I know it was a big moment when she had to um, not sit cross-legged and then not do full prostrations. Um, other issues about <laughs> um, being older and uh, having the consequences of your body express themselves in the middle of um, <laughs> a ceremony. So I think allowing for the complexity of our experience is really key. So again, in the choral analogy, um, can we accept our position, right? Can I accept that the sense of being a second soprano, <laughs> while it has that terminology, again, in the days that I was, and in the, in the context, you know, in middle school, we did not speak about being mezzo-sopranos, um, that I have to understand that's my range, you know, that can't, that doesn't change. And as a second per soprano, you know, there's a point in which um, you can go only so high and you can only go so low. And, and, and in my experience, I don't know, obviously for more um, skilled second soprano, but when I sing, there's a point in which I actually get kind of stuck before I switch from the high to the lower. And so it, it's not pleasant and it, it often, of course, is happening as I'm singing. So, um, and yet this is my range, right? I'm going to accept that um, there's going to be a crack in there in which, um, uh, again, you know, obviously if singing was really something I, I want to keep continuing or love that much, I would probably be much more skilled how to transition between that place that's really kind of, you know, is the edge. Right? And of course, I'm glad that languaging, you know, uh, maybe in middle school still, in junior high school, has changed from being called second soprano to maybe mezzo-soprano. And in some ways, acceptance of conditions as they are is our practice. And so, and on a certain level, is it that we're able to allow ourselves and ex accept and allow that there's pain here and there's difficulty and so this is how come metta is the antidote. So of course the, the metta is kindness, loving kindness, and the practice is to repeat phrases of that, right? Um, to, to let in what it is that um, is a, a bomb for the, for the difficulty. So, you know, the classist phrases are maybe filled with kindness or goodwill. Um, may I be well, have a sense of well-being. Um, may I have 
peace and ease. Um, may I have no inner and outer safety. And may I be happy. Um, safety does also happen in Karuna, so that shows up in compassion, so it shows up in two places. So in terms of a practice, are we um, willing to um, perhaps place our attention on, on our thoughts of loving kindness to ourselves, right? Are we willing to make our well-being and others' well-being important enough? Are we able to connect to peace and ease whenever we need it? And, and by, by the way, all these are you want to provide them for other people, right? So it's not just a self-practice. And then are we willing to know happiness or contentment? Are we aware that not everything has to be fixed and that in the midst of difficulty, where is there not difficulty? So second is the intention of renunciation or relinquishment. Um, so one, one thing to, to think about in terms of compassion, um, you know, in, in Buddhism, we talk about in general the our practices to, um, but it, it strengthens out both wisdom and compassion and often is talked about like I said two wings of a bird right um, and so on one level there's a sense that when we have wisdom and the more and more we have wisdom compassion is a is the response that's kind of automatic right? another way to understand that is um, and I learned this from Gil completely and I don't know where he learned it but um, if everyone would like to um, if you take your hand and you squeeze it as hard as you can. Just go ahead, squeeze it, squeeze it, right? So this is contraction, this is difficulty, right? Just keep on squeezing it as hard as you can. Go ahead, just keep doing it. Go ahead. I know I'm holding my breath now as I'm trying to squeeze harder and harder. Yep, yep, keep holding. Keep going and you, you keep doing it as I stop, but just keep doing it. And the thing is, maybe it's already happened. At some point you're going to let go because we cannot, cannot hang on forever. Right? And then sometimes we put effort in that hanging on um, as opposed to um, uh, realizing or excuse me, we put effort towards saying, let go, let go, let go, when, when we can acknowledge that actually the more that we pay attention to the, the difficulty, um, at some point it, it let goes on its own, right? So this is why part of our practice is staying with the difficulty. But it's also, we could ask for help, right? So can you ask for help? So um, in the choral director analogy, you could say um, in terms of the, the renunciation is perhaps it's letting go of that I'm in total control. Right? I know that sometimes as when, when I'm, you know, the person in charge or whatever, um, I forget that I can ask for help, right? Um, can you ask for help in caring for the choir, 
Right. So um, can you support people also to let go of their attachment to their position and remember the bigger picture, right? That a second soprano is a part of the whole. There's no chorus or it's an incomplete chorus without a second soprano. So in terms of our sense of negotiating with the world and experience, um, can we um, let in, can we ask for help or can we let in um, things that we don't know, right? Let go of our expectation and access that not knowing is actually a freeing experience. And I think when we can do that, um, it leads us to awe or um, presence of joy, beauty, humor, lightness, appreciation. So um, in Lunch's book, Seeds for a Boundless Life, don't forget that Blanche's name, Zenke, right, um, means inconceivable joy. So this is in the very beginning of her book. It says, if we are open to embracing the surprises as they arise, then there will be inconceivable joy. If we fuss and fume and say, this isn't what I expected, then there will be inconceivable misery. Just to welcome your life as it arrives, moment after moment, to meet it as fully as you can, being as open to it as you can, being as ready for whatever arises as you can, and meeting it wholeheartedly. This is renunciation. This is leaving behind all your preferences, all your ideas and notions and schemes, meeting life as it is. Another way to put that is can we trust that things are happening as they are and we're part of that. A while back in our retreat, I will say that I had a, I'll call it a realization. I realized that I am never separate from the Dharma. I am never separate from the Dharma. The big D Dharma, of course, we're part of phenomena, small d. But I'm never separate from the Dharma. You are never separate from the Dharma, and we are never separate from the Dharma. And in fact, as conditions come and go, we are the Dharma. Just as we say in Zen, this posture itself is Buddha, right? being upright to meet our experiences is to be part of the world completely part of dharma by the way the root one of the roots of dharma or excuse me the root of dharma is dharati which means nature nature with a big n so we are part of nature of course sustaining our awareness of that is the hardest part so the last is the intention of non-injury or harmlessness the antidote to violence. How do we do that? 
One way is harmlessness is to stop desiring to be something else right? or somewhere else. To stop our grasping to be in a different life. You know, if life was only back to normal, if things were only back to the way they are. Right? And then, of course, to do it with a sense of care and with a sense of non-separation. So in our choral analogy, everyone is singing together. So we adjust a, one of those A's is to adjust. How do we adjust our efforting so that it's in harmony, in accordance with things? How do we adjust our views? How do we adjust maybe not just Often we think when we adjust our views, we need to adjust the content of our views. I propose to you that to adjust our view is not so much the content of the view, but what is the way we relate to our views? Uh, recently, very recently, I was just, I don't even know how I stumble on it, you know, when you surf on the net. I was looking up somebody else, a teacher who then led blah, 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 to Bernie Glassman. And there was a little interview with him where he says, I don't even call the Four Noble Truths truths. You know, and part of me is like, what? What? The Four Noble Truths? You don't call them truths? He calls them opinions. And he said, well, I do it for shock value to a certain degree. But also when you say truths, then, um, you know, then you leave out that there are many truths, right? And then also you could call them teachings, but then a lot of time when you say teaching and I'm the ones saying the teaching, then people think there's some authority that I'm giving them as opposed to knowing these practices for themselves. I'm, I'm ad-libbing some here. Um, so the sense of um, our views as not, not solid and that, you know, for everyone, this is the truth for everyone. Um, I think that what is, perhaps for everyone, is that we're all doing our part in our, in the wholeness of the song, to keep my analogy going. Um, uh, so if we allow for that, then if there's a little crack in a voice in this one way that the song comes out in this instance, it's just part of the song. You know, there's no, there's no like, oh, they, they just messed up the whole performance with one crack. So aiming, is the other A, the last A here for what's important to us now. What's of value? What's perhaps even necessary? So I'll propose to you that harmlessness is practicing skillful means, right? or to practice remembering how to enact our skillful intention. Joanna Macy who, of course, is a practitioner and an, uh, an elder with a lot of wisdom around our ecology, says, Uncertainty, when accepted, sheds a bright light on the power of intention. That is, what you can count on, not the outcome, but the motivation you bring, the vision you hold, the compass setting you choose to follow. So in our 
my core analogy, which is actually not so different um, from chanting. I know that uh, when I went to Tassajara, um, you know, I was taught that we don't chant with our um, mouths, we chant with our ears. We're not chanting to, you know, unless you're the kokio, then your position is to lead. But otherwise, we're chanting to harmonize with each other, to be part of one voice. I was just thinking about this, um, you know, way, and, and I looked, I just looked it up, and um, it was June 2nd of last year, in the midst of the pandemic, um, you know, was that, there was a lot of group singing things on YouTube. And then there was actually, I had gotten an invitation to record my do, myself doing the makahanya. Um, and then it would be part of a whole bunch of Soto monks, not nuns, mostly monks, but doing it. And I was, I was too, you know, I was like, eh, I don't want to, I'm not so good at it. And now I regret it. And um, I'll put it in, in the, in the, if you don't know it, they did a beautiful job. And there are certainly some people in there that I knew, I know um, uh, from the U.S. And yeah, that I know from the U.S. Um, so um, of 60 um, sotos and mostly monks and some nuns um, chanting together. So as we're opening up, please remember that we're all doing this together. And just as there's always r room in the zendo, especially when hybrid, right? Endless spaces, um, there's room on the path for everyone. Okay. Thank you very much for your attention. How about questions? Leon-san, are you okay with some questions? Yeah, hi. I take comments too, if you want to have comments. I used I to say, a, yes. Uh, I see on, on your window, uh, down at the bottom it says, Olone unseated. And I wondered what that meant. Oh yeah, so part of some, some, some of us are, um, indicating the native land that we're on. So I'm on, technically I'm on the, the nation of Ohlone and they never ceded the land. And then in terms of the, the tribe, technically I'm in San Francisco and the, where I am, there is a map which I can put it on. Dap, can you actually find it and put it on? Native lands, California, you can find out. It's very cool. You could pick your street and it'll say what, so the tribe is the, Ramatush tribe. Part of the movement um, to, to uplift both black, indigenous, and other people of color. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah sure. And same thing with the gender. That's also given all that. Um, 
awareness around that we're not binary as genders. Um, that's why some of us also have been putting our, instead of people making assumption, I see your hand, Ron, I was just finishing my sentence. Um, yeah, so that same thing with the gender. Yeah, Ron. Yes, I, you may find it interesting uh, if you know this, but it was thought that the Ramaytush were extinct. And Ooh. I believe it was recently discovered that there was a family uh, down on the peninsula that is actually direct descendants of the people who lived here in um, San Francisco. Wow, yeah, that, I am very interested. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I'm gonna go look that up after this. Today. I have a question. Can I ask a question to you, to you or anyone in the or all of you in the zender? If you want, how how is it being back together? And how long you've been doing it? Just a couple of weeks, two no. weeks, and it's a great improvement, at least from my point of view. Yeah, we almost, we actually were getting ready to sign the contract to go back to our space in downtown Oakland, access to Zen, and um, then it was the, all the Delta stuff. So I'm just honing off. We're doing it like month by month at this point, because we're in a tiny little yoga room in, in, a, in a shared workspace. So many people, you know, it's not like we can control who, who goes in and out and yeah. And I certainly have lost people and for, you know, when the pandemic happened, there were a lot more people uh, coming on, wanting to learn meditation or being a part of Sangha, which is great. I'm, I'm, and people are, I know are Zoom tired for sure. I've heard that directly also. Yeah. And that sense of, you know, Zen is so dependent upon, um, I won't, excuse me, my, my experience of the practice of Zen is so dependent on the un unsaid, you know, uh, and that practicing with people at Tassajara, you can, you know, down for those been at Tassajara, someone's all the way at the end of the road and you can just, just having practice with them, you can know who it is just by the way they, it's not like distinguishing things, just the way they walk or, you know, who's serving you orioki just by their feet. Some people, you know them by their smell. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> Always a benefit, but. All right, well, I think you've reduced us to a, a peaceful silence. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Much appreciation. Do we chant out? I forget. Yeah. Please, yeah. please come again soon. All right, thank you.